Well, thank you all for being here tonight. Uh, tonight is week two of our five-week series on dumb things smart Christians believe. So if you missed last week, uh, a brief summary is uh, faith can fix anything. And so my question to those of you that were here last week is, can faith fix anything? No, it can't. Uh, if you want to find out more about that, uh, we recorded that, and it's on the website that's at the bottom of your handout. Uh, so you can go later and listen to that if you like. But tonight we look at uh, the next two dumb ideas, forgiving means forgetting, and a godly home guarantees godly kids. So for those of you that weren't here last week, just going to recap real quick on the uh, first couple of pages in Osborne's book. He says, uh, it's no news flash that smart people can do some pretty dumb things, but lots of times we forget that smart people can also believe some pretty dumb things. Over the years, I've counseled and worked with many people who have made life-altering decisions based on what they perceive to be biblical principles, only to discover too late that what they thought was biblical didn't come from the Bible at all. Most of the times, they were victims of a spiritual urban legend. A spiritual urban legend is just like a secular urban legend. It's a belief, a story, an assumption, or a truism that gets passed around as fact. And because they sound so plausible and come from a reputable source, spiritual urban legends are often accepted without question and then quickly passed on. Once widely disseminated, they tend to take on a life of their own. They become almost impossible to refute because everyone knows they're true. Anyone who dares to question their veracity gets written off as spiritually dull, lacking in faith, or liberal. And admittedly, the consequences of some spiritual misconceptions aren't particularly devastating, but far too often, the consequences are. Think of the disillusionment that sets in when someone writes off God for failing to keep a promise that he never made, or the despair that follows a step of faith that turns out to have been a leap onto thin ice. But whatever the case, I encourage you to examine each one with an open mind and an open Bible. So if you've got your handouts, uh, we're ready for the first two blanks. If you didn't get a handout, there should be a couple left, I think. Um, so they're back on that table. Anybody needs a handout? We're good, I think. All right, fantastic. So uh, Daryl asked me to teach uh, a series, and he asked me, um, he, he does this periodically, hey, you got anything on your mind, you got anything on your heart? And I said, yes, I do, actually. Um, and I picked this for a couple of reasons. One, to encourage us to look at Scripture to test all things. We hear a lot of things in our lives, uh, a lot of things that we can validate and a lot of things that we can't validate. Uh, much of what we see on the news each day, we're trusting somebody else to get it right and to give us the facts so that we can understand what's going on in the world. Uh, relative to spiritual things, however, God's already given us the facts. They're in the Bible. So we can validate and test what's true and what's not true. And then two, to remove the disillusionment that comes when we rely on promises that God never made. You probably know somebody that has hung their hat on a theological truth that turned out to be not true at all. And it's very sad because you can see the hurt and disappointment in someone when they come to realize that they've believed the wrong thing at the wrong time. And it's very disheartening. So our schedule for this series, uh, last week we looked at... Um, the next slide ready? There we go. Uh, the introduction, faith can fix anything. Tonight is forgiveness means forgetting and a godly home guarantees godly kids. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at God has a blueprint for my life and Christians shouldn't judge. That's a really fun one. You will probably have about a thousand questions for me afterward. I expect to get to go home sometime around 930. Okay. Um, week four, everything happens for a reason. And Jiminy Cricket's uh, favorite, let your conscience be your guide. Uh, and then the last week, God brings good luck, a valley means a wrong turn, and dead people go to a better place. So many of you have probably heard several of these things before, and we're just going to take 
one by one, verse by verse, and just knock holes in these uh, really, really dumb ideas. So, forgiving means forgetting. Uh, Periodically, um, an author will write something so clear and so easy to understand that there's just not a better way to explain it than to read it for just a moment. So, I'm going to read about two pages out of this book. This is the book that we're using as our uh, guide for these ideas, and this is Forgiving Means Forgetting. Forgiving is not an option. It's a sacred duty demanded by Jesus, reiterated throughout the New Testament. It's central to the Christian message. Would you agree? Good with that? Okay. But when it comes to actually forgiving someone of something, well, that's a different matter. It's tough to do, and it's all made the harder because so many of us have never been shown what biblical forgiveness actually looks like. Some of us have been taught that forgiveness is pretending nothing happened, a head-in-the-sand posture that ignores the obvious. Some of us think of it as a never-ending series of second chances. Others view it as a fresh start with all the consequences and old baggage removed. And still others imagine it as the immediate and full restoration of a broken relationship, complete with the same level of trust and privileges that preceded the wrongdoing. But the goofiest idea of all is the widely held belief that genuine forgiveness literally means forgetting what happened, wiping the clay so slim that memory of the transgression disappears. That's what I was taught as a new Christian. I was told that if I confessed my sins to God, he would forgive them. If I confessed the same sin twice, God would be confused. He'd have no idea what I was talking about because he'd already forgiven and forgotten the first time. Forgiveness was an act of self-induced spiritual amnesia that God did for me and I was expected to do for others. But there was one problem with that concept, and that's not how God forgives. He doesn't forget when he forgives, at least not in the sense that we commonly use the word forget today. If you look up the word forgot in an English dictionary, you'll find its primary meaning is an inability to recall something, as in forgetting to where you put the keys or forgetting to show up at an important meeting. It's the opposite of remembering. Perhaps that's why when the Bible says that God forgives our sins and remembers them no more, many of us think that he has literally erased them from his memory. It's as if they never happened. Add that to other verses that speak of God removing our sins as far as the east is from the west and hurling our iniquities into the depths of the sea, with a no fishing sign, prominently the place nearby, I was told. And you can see why forgiveness has often been defined as letting go to the point of removing every trace of the wrongdoing from memory. But that's not what those verses mean or how the word remember is used in the Bible. When the Bible speaks of God remembering something, it doesn't mean that a long-lost thought suddenly pops into his mind. It simply means that he renews his work with the person or situation at hand. For instance, the Bible says that after Noah floated around for nearly five months in the ark, God remembered him. Right? Everybody with me so far? That God remembered Noah. That doesn't mean that Gabriel had to remind him that he'd left the hose on. That wasn't what was going on there. It wasn't as God has, oh, I made this earth, and there are people that have drowned, and there's eight folks bobbing around and a whole bunch of animals. I wonder how they're doing. Right? That's not how this went. It means that God renewed his work in Noah's life. From Noah's perspective, it might have seemed that God had forgotten about him, but God hadn't forgotten And the same goes for many biblical stories about the sins of the saints and God's subsequent forgiveness. From Adam's foolish taste test to David's mind-boggling adultery to Peter's harsh denial, the Bible tells us of some pretty ugly sins. Each is prominently featured, widely known, and fully forgiven. Now, if forgiveness means God literally has no memory of those events, we've got a bit of a theological dilemma on our hands. You and I know things God isn't aware of. The Bible contains stories he can't remember. Obviously, that's an absurdity. Everybody with me so far? Okay. So what does the Bible mean when it speaks of God remembering our sins no more? 
It means that he no longer responds to us in light of those sins. They no longer derail our relationship with him. They no longer garner his wrath. They are gone completely from our account. But it doesn't mean he can't remember all the things we've done. An omniscient God doesn't forget stuff. Now, does this make sense so far? Okay, so before we go any further, I want to ask an incredibly simple question. What's the question in purple on your handout? Does God forgive sins? Everybody answer on three. One, two, three. Hey, you got it right. Cool. Absolutely, he forgives sins. Completely and totally. And it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. I don't want anything that I talk about tonight to make you doubt or question that irrevocable fact that God forgives sins. And it is wonderful for us. Amen? All right. So, what does Psalm 103, 12 say? I'm going to read you a couple of verses. These aren't on the screen. It says, As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. You've heard this before? Yes, and that's wonderful. It is beautiful. He has removed our transgressions from us, and he has. Micah 7, 19, He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Woohoo! That's awesome, right? How many of you are glad that some of those things are gone? Yeah, I raised both hands. <laughs> and maybe a foot, right? Get plumb Pentecostal over this. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 34, For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. You can see the word remember in the Bible. You can think about focusing on. I will focus on that thing no more. Uh, I believe my wife is here. Yes. Uh, Jules, when I study, I do something very specifically to block out anything and everything that might be going on in my home that also I occupy with a 12-year-old and a 9-year-old. What is that? I put my earbuds in. I call it jacking into the matrix. Plug in, and everything else is totally gone. I have no idea the songs that are playing. It's Christian music. I have several Pandora uh, stations that I listen to. I put one on, and away we go. I'm not focused on this, and I'm not remembering what I'm listening to. I'm focused on something else. This helps me focus on something else. I don't know how God does it. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't know how he can decide not to focus on all the stuff that consumes my mind at times. But he does. And it works out wonderfully for us. Right? Does this make sense? Okay. So, two realms of forgiveness. When it comes to forgiveness, this is a quote by Osborne, there are two realms, the spiritual and the earthly. God's forgiveness shows up a bit differently in each one. In the spiritual and eternal realm, forgiveness wipes the slate clean. While God doesn't forget what we've done, he treats it as if it's never happened. Spiritual and eternal consequences, here's your blank, are completely removed. Judicially, our record is cleared. He bangs the gavel and says, not guilty. And I go, yes, this is wonderful. This is exciting. This makes the difference. This means I am not guilty. Amen? And on the earthly level, things are different. God's forgiveness seldom, if ever, removes all the consequences or restores all that we've broken. Instead, it offers a second chance. I heard someone use this illustration one time, and I'll walk you through it. In our lives, if you think about our lives as a door, just picture a door here. And we take all kinds of things, and we throw it up against that door. Many times, I will take something, 
and I decide that I want to dedicate a part of my life to this, and I'll take a nail, and I'll nail that thing to the door. And I say, oh, I've got something else. And I nail that thing to the door. And I nail, and I nail, and I nail, and I nail. And periodically, I will put things in that door that should not be there. These are problems for me. These are sin. And when I confess that sin, and Jesus forgives that sin, he pulls those nails out of the door. And it's beautiful. But when you pull a nail out of a piece of wood, what's left? There's a hole there. And that's the earthly consequences of sin. Anybody ever experienced earthly consequences of sin? Anybody ever been to the doctor? That's an earthly consequence of sin. If there was no earthly consequence for sin, Adam and Eve would still be hanging out with us. Imagine that. 6,000 years old. Still hanging out. That'd be pretty neat, wouldn't it? Yeah. Sin causes decay. Decay is why I am uncomfortable right now. I have these over-the-ear microphone on, and it's touching my glasses. And I'm a bit OCD, those of you that know me. Uh, It should be C-D-O. It's uh, alphabetical, right? Um, And it's bothering me. You'll get that in a minute, or you won't. It's okay. Uh, And it's bothering me because all this is touching because I have to wear glasses because my eyes have deteriorated. That's a result of sin in the world. Now, we have two opportunities when we see those just like us, who have holes in their door. Usually, we pick up one of two things. Sometimes, it's a magnifying glass. And we go, and we shine it on this hole and go, look how big their hole is. It's awful. They're wicked. They're evil. Did you see what so-and-so did? Did you hear about this? Have you seen anybody ever put a magnifying glass on a hole in a door? Yes. We have another option. There's stuff called wood putty. You know what wood putty is? Sean, what's wood putty? It fills the hole, right? What's the purpose of wood putty? It fills that hole up. We can, I can reach for a magnifying glass or I can reach for wood putty. I want to reach for wood putty because I know my door is full of holes. And I've had so many exceedingly patient, loving saints come alongside me and go, Jim, I can help you with that. And it's been beautiful to see. So we have a choice, magnifying glass or wood putty. And it's a big difference. It's a big difference. So a couple more thoughts on this concept. Um, The strange math of scorekeeping and why it is nearly always inaccurate. Matthew 18, verses 21 and 22, if you want to turn there for a sec. This is one of my favorite uh, passages when I was a kid. Um, I've always been a, a bit of a numbers geek. Uh, Gary mentioned this morning at the Hickson campus that there were 31,102 verses in the Bible. And uh, he said, I bet you never counted that. And I sit in the back next to Daryl, and I looked at Daryl and said, I did. In third, fourth, and fifth grade, I was part of a school that uh, when I finished with my work, I had free time to do whatever I wanted. I typically went to the library and read as much as I possibly could. Uh, our assistant pastor preached a sermon one day. He talked about all the verses in the Bible, and it got me thinking, I wonder how many there are. I can do that. So for the next several weeks, I sat in my little cubicle, and I counted and counted and counted and counted and counted and carried the one and carried the four and added and went to the next page and counted and counted and counted and came up with 31,102. 
and showed it to my teacher, to which she promptly said, you've been doing what? (laughs) My, what a strange little child. I talked to her a few years ago, and she said she still never had another child do that. And I said, that's probably good. It bodes well for the rest of your students. Um, but, but that level of detail, I loved numbers. And if you've got your Bible, Matthew 18, 21 and 22, says, Then Peter came up to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and forgive him? Up to seven times? You, and you can almost, I want to do this in my Bill Brandenburg voice. Um, really? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? You can just hear this self-righteous indignation at the end of the sentence. Uh, And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but 70 times seven. And I looked at that verse and I went, I know the answer. I know the answer. I can do the math. And the reality is it's not about doing the math, right? It's about understanding we forgive. You know, what's the church about? We forgive. That's what we're about. We love. We care. We engage. We do life together. But boy, oh boy, we better forgive. You ever been in a church where you didn't forgive? It's not fun, is it? There's usually a list of rules somewhere. Sometimes they're printed. Um, I don't know what you can and cannot do. And that's no fun either. Uh, And in case they didn't quite get this, Jesus in Luke 17, verses 3 and 4 says, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And that's where things get hard, right? Because that guy sitting in the cubicle next to you, he really should know better than to do that seven times in the same day. Right? You know know him. You've worked next to him too. That's good to know. I mean, really, how many times do we need to forgive? If he says, I repent, you forgive him. So what does that look like? Okay. Osborne asks a great question. What happens if the person who wrongs us doesn't want to be forgiven? You ever experienced this? There's a lot of opinions on this. Uh, Jesus had one when he was actually on the cross, and this was about people that didn't know what they were doing. In Luke 23, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Can you imagine? Someone is in the process of killing you, and you pray to God and ask for God to forgive them. In the process of killing you, not offending you, not cutting you off in traffic, not stealing your line in Walmart, not opening up the dreaded coupon book at Walmart and getting behind that person, right? This is in the process of killing you, and you ask God to forgive them. So what does Jesus say when believers sin against believers? Well, we just read that verse, didn't we? If your brother says to you, I repent, you shall forgive him. It's very difficult, right? We don't like these verses. We generally don't pick these as our favorite verse in the Bible. Anybody ever told you that their favorite verse in the Bible was Luke 17, 3, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Anybody got that one written in the front of their Bible? Probably not, because it's uncomfortable. It doesn't feel good, but that's what Christianity is about. Another quote by Osborne, he says, In other words, there's a time and place for confrontation, rebuke, and pointing out our displeasure. It's what's being done. God's call to forgive does not mean we have to go through life as a punching bag. 
It does mean, it doesn't mean we can't speak up. It doesn't mean rolling over. And I want to be crystal clear about something here. If you are in a relationship where there is physical abuse, get out quickly. Really? No amens to that. If you are in a relationship where there is physical abuse, get out quickly. Wow, I'm going to keep saying it until you say amen. If you are in a relationship where there is physical abuse, get out quickly. Thank you. We love people. We do not tolerate abuse, period. No ifs, ands, or buts. It's not happening. So what about trust? Because there's a trust issue here as well, right? And this is what people really struggle with. Sometimes, sometimes the act of forgiving can be one issue, but the trust issue is another. So does a relationship get restored to the full trust that it had before when someone says, I repent? That's what Osborne says. He says, trust, close relationships, and forgiveness are not necessarily related. While forgiveness puts aside all bitterness and all plans for revenge... It doesn't make someone trustworthy or turn the person back into our best friend. Trust has to be earned. Would you agree? Absolutely. Um, I'll give you a scenario. Let's say we've got someone uh, who the nails in their door were uh, child abuse. And I don't mean like smacking somebody around. I mean heinous, inappropriate child abuse. They go to prison. They serve their time. They get out. They meet Jesus, they walk the aisle, they join Stewart Heights Baptist Church. Okay? Real scenario. Are we going to allow that person to serve in the nursery? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. There's a trust issue there on both sides, right? He just burned a lot of rubber. That was amazing. (laughs) I can't fit that into the sermon at all in any way, shape, or form, but that was just too distracting not to acknowledge. Um, Yeah, there's a point here where trust has to be earned, and there's a point where trust can't be earned, okay? And I just want to acknowledge that. I'm not talking about some type of a fairy tale world where Pollyanna comes along and sprinkles magic pixie dust on your head and everything turns wonderful again. That's not the way this works. This is real life stuff, okay? So I don't want you to think that's where we're at. So what do you do when you don't want to forgive? That's an ugly question, isn't it? Because you ever been to the place where you didn't want to forgive? I have. Um, I had my heart broken in college. Uh, And I don't mean just broken. I mean she ripped it out and drug it through the streets and set it on fire. And then, I mean, it was awful. It was awful. And uh, I didn't want to trust anybody for a long time. And I certainly didn't want to forgive. Um, Here's Osborne's take. He says, I give God permission. He goes on a walk. I give God permission to change the way I feel to make me want to forgive. You ever thought about that? God, I give you my emotions. You change them as you will. That's a tough prayer to pray. That's a real tough prayer to pray. Because I haven't walked in your shoes. I don't know what you've been through. And I don't want you to think I'm sitting up here throwing rocks at you, saying, I know what you've been through. This is easy. This is not easy. This is hard stuff. Okay? 
Here's how he sums up this chapter. He says, when we offer forgiveness to those who have no excuse and for things most of the world would consider unforgivable, we become become most like Jesus. Remember, he died for sins he never committed to forgive people who had no right to be forgiven. And maybe that's why it's such a big deal to him that we learn to forgive as we've been forgiven. So, before we finish with this piece, you can pick up the magnifying glass or you can pick up the wood putty. What do we want to do? And it's a hard decision. Because sometimes the easy stuff, the guy cuts you off in the road, okay, we'll wood putty over that, that's fine. The guy that mistreats a relative, the guy that disrespects you in front of your boss at work, your neighbor who just doesn't get that that behavior is inappropriate. That's harder. You might need a lot of wood putty. It's okay. Jesus has a lot of forgiveness. So that's forgiving means forgetting, and it doesn't. That's a myth. That's a dumb idea. Don't buy into it. The second big idea for tonight is a godly home guarantees godly kids. You say, where in the world did you get this idea, Jim? Well, a lot of people think Proverbs 22.6 is what it says. It says, absolutely, it's what it says, right? Nope. Here's what we think it says, or what some of us think it says. Osborne's quote here, a child raised correctly will come back to the Lord eventually. You ever heard this before? Raise your hand if you've heard this. Keep your hands up for just a second. Look around. This is how prevalent this one is. I've had multiple conversations about this one in our church lobby. This one's here. Okay? So what does it actually say? Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I love to do detailed word-by-word analysis of Scripture. So we'll just walk through this. Train up. It's an imperative, meaning to dedicate, to inaugurate, or to train. This word's used four other times in three other scriptures and is always translated dedicate. The idea behind the word, and here's your blank, is that this is a dedication to a narrow way of use. It's a dedication. So we're going to dedicate a child. This word child is used in the Old Testament for human beings from the age of newborn to the age of 20. In the way, in the journey, in the direction, in the manner, in the habit that he should go. Literally, this word is the Hebrew word for mouth. And you go, I didn't see that one coming. Yep. For the word for mouth. The idea is how much can you put in the mouth? It's the appropriate volume to put in someone's mouth. In the way he should go. Has anybody ever tried to feed a baby? Yes. Have you tried to feed a baby when the baby didn't want to eat? You're laughing. Why are you laughing? Because it's not going to happen. You start... Right? Because I know... That was, that was the sum total of all my musical abilities right there, okay? Because the adult knows how much should go in, right? And the adult is committed to doing this until the baby takes the baby food and smears it all over themselves and all over the walls and flings it back on the adult. And then you've got broccoli in places that God never intended for broccoli to be, right? And it's just not okay. But the idea is that somebody knows how much should go in that mouth at the right time in the way he should go. And when he is old, the first time this word is used in scriptures when Sarah is making fun of Abraham and she's mocking her own age. So when he is old, old. Sarah was old, old at that point. Nobody in here is even close to that, so I can say that. Uh, When he is old, he will not depart, or here's your second blank, or turn aside, or avoid, or end from it. 
So if this proverb teaches us anything, it teaches us that a child will not turn away. You see this? And when he is old, he will not depart. Does this verse say anything about coming back? I need an audible answer, guys. Does this verse say anything about coming back? It doesn't. You can't hang that theological point on this verse. It doesn't work. I'll read this whole quote here. It teaches us that a child will not turn away. It does not teach that a child can grow up to live like a pagan and eventually come back to God regardless of what happens. It's not what happens here. There's a forgotten distinction. Osborne says this is a proverb, not a promise. A proverb is different. It's an observation about how life generally works. It tells us what usually happens, not what always happens. If you disagree with this point, I challenge you to read through the book of Proverbs until you find one that you have physically seen not be true in some instance in your life. You ever done this? You've read a proverb and you've gone, well, well, I've seen an example of that going the other way, right? The righteous aren't always honored. The wicked sometimes succeed. The diligent can lose it all, and the lazy can strike it rich. The same goes for Solomon's encouraging words about children who are properly raised. It's a proverb, not a promise. Not many will depart, but some will. So why is this one so dangerous? Thanks for asking that question. I'm glad you asked. This is why this one's so dangerous. It produces two different sides of the same error. Misplaced optimism and needless guilt. Have you ever talked to anybody whose child has gone completely off the deep end? And they have complete and total hope that, well, absolutely, I've raised them right. They'll come back. Time out. God didn't promise that. He did not promise that. And then there's the needless guilt side. It's the, I thought I did everything right, but my child looks like a pagan. What, what did I do? What did, and it, there's this, you can actually just cocoon in on yourself and collapse and be severely depressed from an action that somebody else took that's their responsibility. So what does the Bible actually say? Well, the Bible actually says that rebellion happens in even the best of environments. God himself made the first and best environment. It was in the Garden of Eden. Put two people in it. There's not a lot of relationship dynamics between two people. There's a lot of relationship dynamics in this room, right? Would you agree? Within two people and God walking around, minimal number of relationship dynamics. Rebellion can happen even in the best of environments. Second thing, everyone is responsible for his or her own actions. You agree with that? I hope you do. I hope you do. We will be held accountable for how we reared our children, not for how they turned out. I'm going to say that again. We will be held accountable for how we reared our children, not how they turned out. And please don't say you raise children. We raise cattle, okay? We raise livestock. You rear children. There's a difference, all right? It's my grammar annoyance for the night. Uh, Osborne says, None of us can hide behind our upbringing or our environment as an excuse for our wrong decisions or foolish behavior. Another point here, we can have lots of influence, but we don't have any power. I don't have any power at all. Right? I love my kids, but I can't make them have a heart change. I can make their behavior change. I have figured out how to do that, but I can't make their hearts change. 
and this is the one that's really tough for me because I'm a math guy. I like numbers. I like absolutes. I like one side of the equation to add up to the other side of the equation. I like to be able to plan and predict exactly what's going to be happening in the future, and the reality is there are no guarantees. I've got four people listed up on the screen. Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, and Jehoshaphat. I have to think about that one for a second, sorry. It's an interesting line of guys. Rehoboam was Abijah's dad, Abijah was Asa's dad, and Asa was Jehoshaphat's dad. Rehoboam was a bad, bad man. As in, I probably should have used capital B, capital A, capital D. Bad man. A bad dad had a bad son. Is this shocking to anybody? It kind of makes sense, right? It's like, okay, it kind of makes sense. And something changed between Abijah and Asa. Asa had a bad father, but he turned out to be a good man. Awesome. That happens at times, right? How many of you are first-generation Christian? Your parents are not believers. I got one over here. Anybody else? Got to get the Shekinah glory out of my eyes here. One over here. Anybody else? This is rare. It was rare in the Old Testament as well. And then Asa, a good guy, had a good son, Jehoshaphat. You say, Jim, what does... What does that matter? We learned how to pronounce four guys' names. Yes, we did. And my relationship with God does not force or guarantee that my son's relationship with God will go one way or the other. I've got a good dad having a bad son. I've got a good dad having a good son. I've got a bad dad having a bad son and a bad dad having a good son. You say, so that means I don't have to do anything. Oh, no. Oh, no. The bar is quite high. The bar is so high, in fact, that a good chunk of the New Testament is dedicated to talking about how our relationships in our families interact with each other and the right way and the wrong way to do that. We have gobs of examples of the right way and gobs of examples of the wrong way. Here's what Osborne says. He says, parents have a responsibility for how they raise their children. He used raise, sorry. Passing the torch should be a top concern for every Christian parent. Nothing says that more than the requirement than those who offer leadership in the church must first have their household in order. Do you know this? Yeah. Our leaders have to have our households in order. It's the way it works. Admittedly, there are plenty of Christian parents who have good reason to feel guilty. Hypocrisy, angry outbursts, inattention, or its mere opposite, hyper-control. Poor marriages and broken homes are all too common. The price for each is always high, but when godly parents do the best they can and yet fail to achieve the outcome they hope for, they need a break, not a drive-by guilting. Amen? Has anybody ever felt bad because your kids acted up in church? And you're like, oh no, somebody's going to think badly of me. Yeah, it happens, guys. It's going to happen to all of us. It's just the way that works. Okay? He goes on. He says, so if you're a parent, oh, he says, and, and when things go well, we need a lot more gratitude and a lot less pride. So if you're a parent, give it your best shot, then go take a nap. And if you've already given it your best shot, take a long nap. There's only so much we can control. If you don't remember anything else from tonight, we have no power. And that's hard because we live in a world where 
Burger King even says, it's all about you. You can get it your way. Whatever you want us to do to that hamburger, we will do it to that hamburger. And the reality is, that's just stupid. (laughs) You know? If I need to pick the onions off, I'll pick the onions off. It's not a big deal, right? I don't have any power. I have no power to change someone's heart. That doesn't work. That's not my job. And I get disillusioned with myself and disillusioned with God when I put that on my job description as opposed to leaving it on the Holy Spirit's. You ever experienced that? So this isn't in your notes. So if you want to make it easier for your kids to grow to know God, work on having a great marriage. At least they can see it. Uh, My parents today celebrate their 40th wedding anniversary. And I think that's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, They were not always, um, let me see how I phrase this. Every day was not a good day. And everybody who's married says, duh. (laughs) That's not even an amen. That's just a duh, right? Um, But they stayed together, you know? And I remember in high school going to sleep some nights and putting my pillow over my head and holding it so tight just so I wouldn't hear them arguing at each other. And they'd go to bed, and they'd wake up the next morning, and I'd see them kissing on each other. And I'd go, Dad, stop it. You know, it's just, that's my mom, right? And he just loved her. And she just loved him. And they're still going. And they love each other, right? And that's beautiful. It's a wonderful thing. So make it easy for your kids to know God. Model what you hope to get. I don't even like saying that. It just tastes bad coming out. But the reality is if I model what I hope to get, at least they'll have seen it. They'll know what it looks like. Adapt to their unique bents. Uh, Julie and I found out. Uh, is Anna Grace in the room? She's not? Okay. We found out how to get her to go clothes shopping. Because she didn't like anything that my wife and I like. I mean, it's not an inappropriate thing. She's wanting to go wear, like, short shorts or something. She, she's all about modesty. She thinks going and, and spending time buying clothes is a waste of time. I'm like, why should we do that? I, right? Thank you. It, it is, right? She's probably gotten this from me because, yeah, yeah, Julie said amen, in case you didn't hear her. Uh, so we bribed her. We did. I'm not above bribery. We said for every piece of clothing that you and your mother agree on that you buy, that you agree to wear, we will let you buy a book. Books to her are, oh, my goodness. I mean, her life, it's, she's probably more well-read right now than any high school teacher she'll ever have. It's just ridiculous. But we figured out what works for her, finally. Now, she's 12. We're not very fast learners at this. But, and it may change in six months. I don't know. But right now, yesterday, it worked. Yes. That was a win. And it was really cool to see that they both came back from this shopping experience and were smiling as opposed to, I need a Coke. You know, it's different, right? Um, And if you want to make it harder for your kids to know God, and I've messed up on every single one of these, um, be hands-off when they sin. Remember the story of uh, Eli in the Old Testament? He was hands-off with those boys, right? And what did God do to his line? Cut it off. There's nobody... That's descendants of Eli on the planet today. Think about that. That's a big deal. Be hands off when they sin if you want them to 
be hard for your kids to know God. Be unreasonably strict. Guilty. I'm just, she's going to tell me that you're, I'm guilty, so I'm just going to admit it up front. And then be overly righteous. Guilty. It's the reality, guys, right? We've all pretended at some point. Agreed? Can we, can we tell the truth? We'll turn like the mic off for a second. This won't even get recorded. That, and that's just the reality of the way life is. We all pretend at some point. But we've got to model what we hope to get. And please, please, please don't think that if you don't have children or if you've had children and they're not in this church, that you're not modeling something for the kids that are here. Because you are. I promise you. One of the things that I point out to my daughter and my son every single time they're in an evening service is the prevalence of gray hair in this room. And it is beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful. I love it. I need you guys to keep coming every week because that gives my 12-year-old something to shoot for. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Keep coming. It's important. We get to do this together. And please know that a godly home does not guarantee godly kids. Amen? Amen. Stand with me, if you will. We will be dismissed. Am I early? I am. Well, Merry Christmas. How's that? (laughs) Or maybe the clock's slow. I don't know. Maybe I'm not early. Thank you for coming tonight. Um, It ministers to me when people care about God's Word. And I love that. And I love you guys. And I want to say thank you. I love the fact that I get to go to Stewart Heights. I think that's pretty cool. Um, So thank you, thank you, thank you.